some of the greatest times we've had as a family have been going to Orlando to uh, Ligonier conferences that are put on by R.C. Sproul Ministries in Orlando once a year. And um, they're always a great time of Bible teaching. They always bring in some of the best Bible teachers in the world, certainly the best in America. And one of those regulars that's always there is John MacArthur. And I never forget the first one we went to many years ago. And uh, they had a breakout session, and we went to MacArthur's breakout session, and he was teaching on uh, a certain subject that it relates to the message today. And uh, he told a story I'll never forget. He said he just recently traveled to Kazakhstan for a pastor's conference there. He'd been asked to come speak to a group of pastors in the struggling church of that region. You know, that, that Kazakhstan is one of the stans that separated out from the Soviet Union with the fall of the Iron Curtain. And uh, it's between western China and southern Russia, sandwiched in the mountains there, really Central Asia. Very poor area, very persecuted area. The church is struggling there. So 1,600 pastors came together for this intense week of Bible study. MacArthur had to fly over 30 hours to get there. I don't know how many flights it took to get him into Kazakhstan. And he arrived at like 6 a.m. in the morning, on Monday morning, had to start preaching at 8 a.m. So he's there on the ground, goes in to preach, preaches his heart out Monday, preaches his heart out Tuesday, and he's in the middle of teaching all day Wednesday, and a committee of these 1,600 pastors comes to see him, and they set him down in a room and took him off to the side and said, um, we're enjoying what you're doing, Dr. MacArthur, but when are you going to get to the good part? And, and MacArthur said, when he was speaking to us, he said, you know, if you travel to the other side of the world, the exact opposite side of the world, through 15 time zones, and you're pouring yourself out into the message that you're delivering, you really don't want to miss the good part. And uh, he said, you know, I was really trying real hard. And so I asked them, I said, well, what do you mean the good part? And they said, well, what we really want to know about, because he's been teaching them on the church. His teaching was about the church. And he said, what we really want to know about about the church is the future. We want to know about what does God have in store for those who love him. We want to know about heaven. So he shifted his whole teaching, and for the next two days he poured into teaching them all he could about heaven, about the future glory of the church in heaven. And that just struck me so hard that these people who are so persecuted, who are so poor, they're so destitute, they're so stripped of all that we are encumbered with, they, they don't have the things that entangle us. They don't have the things that hinder us from really experiencing God in His fullest. Those people had a clear vision of what their hope was. Their hope was not in this life. Their hope was in heaven. And so that's what they want to know about, is teach us about heaven. And, uh, you know, we're in such risk as American Christians, because we're so blessed. Our lives are so full of the blessings of this life, and we thank God for that. I'm not saying we should reject them. They are all blessings of God. But when they become a hindrance, when they become a liability, when they become something that keeps us from seeing 
our true hopes, our true joy. Our joy is not truly in this life. Our joy and our hope is not truly fixed upon what we experience in temporal things. We're so blinded by all that's around us. That is, until things change, right? Until we have financial difficulties and then we're struggling to make ends meet. Or until we have a loved one who is uh, desperately sick or they pass away. Or until we have family problems, we have marital issues, and our hearts are broken. Or until we have a doctor tell us that we have cancer. Or whatever comes, and I, I apologize up front. I, one thing I have prayed for is that I would not be an emotional basket case. But I was encouraged this week by Brett Favre because he couldn't... <laughs> He was, he was just talking about retiring from the NFL, and he couldn't get through that without being a basket case. So, and I think I'm dealing with a little bit more important issue here. So, But anyway, um, so everything does hinder us from experiencing, and he's one of the toughest fellows on earth, so don't think. It keeps us from experiencing the true intensity of what is God's truth. C.S. Lewis said, God whispers in our pleasures, God speaks in our conscience, but God shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And as I mentioned, most of you know, God's been shouting to me and my family recently in our pain. But he's also been shouting in the grace and mercy that comes with that. And there's so many wonderful things that I could relate to you about how God has ministered to me in this time. And this is not about me and my experience. This is a sacred time when we need to see what God says in his word. But I want it to be personal because I think it's um, an opportunity for you to see how God has blessed me so through his word, through the truths about him that I've seen. And there's so many things I could talk about. But to boil it down to one thing, what is the one thing that has encouraged me the most? What is the one thing that strengthened me the most? It would be Him. He is my treasure. He is my hope. Or to put it another way, it's been the worship of God. Because you can't focus on God without what? Going to worship. It drives us to worship. And the Bible is so full of so many references to God um, and that how we should worship Him, what aspect of Him we should worship Him. And you see on the outline up here, I've put down three. The first one is really the general point of view. You worship God as God. Everything about the word God defines who He is. And just the essence of God as the great I am God. And then two specifics under that, worship of God as Creator and worship of God as Redeemer. And so to do that, as was read for you already, I want us to look at Revelation chapter 4. So if you'll just keep your Bibles open to Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5. And I'll tell you up front, this is a pitiful excuse of an exposition of Revelation. We don't have time to do that. And I'm really just using it for its worship paeons, its worship choruses that are broken out in this scene in heaven that we're taken to. And that's what we're seeing here is a scene in heaven. And it's like we're taking on a trip to heaven. And this is not the first one. 
You know, the Bible has several instances of where people are taken on a trip to heaven. The first one is in Ezekiel chapter 1. Another is Isaiah chapter 6. And Paul was even taken on one in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. But the difference about Paul was he was commanded not to speak. Now, it doesn't say he was given a vision of anything. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 that he was called up to paradise and heard inexpressible words, which a man is not permitted to speak. So Paul didn't relate anything of his experience. Uh, and that may have been partially because he didn't see anything. He just heard things, but they were not permissible for him to speak of. But another was given a vision of heaven at the uh, end of the canon, and uh, he was not only permitted to speak of it, he was commanded to write of it and record it forever as Holy Scripture. And, of course, that's the Apostle John, while on the Isle of Patmos, was given the final revelation of God to close our canon in the book of Revelation. And, you know, the book of Revelation is, at the same time, so simple and so hard. I say so hard because there's so many disagreements on how to view it, the grid of end times to view it through, and I am not going there this morning. Uh, uh, we'll stay away from that. But then again, it's so simple because God gives us an outline of the book in the first chapter. If you flip back to chapter 1, verse 19, in the very first chapter, we have a very simple outline of the book of Revelation. Jesus Christ himself is speaking here to John in his first vision and tells him, Therefore, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. So you can simply divide the book of Revelation into the things which John saw, that's chapter 1, the things which are, that's chapters 2 and 3 about the seven churches of Asia Minor, and then the things which will take place after these things, and that's the futuristic or the prophetic writings of chapters 4 through 22. And so that's where we are this morning is we're dealing with the future. We're looking into the future, but we're seeing worship perfected. We're seeing worship in the heavenly setting that is, I hope, something clear that will help us with our worship today. As a side note, you know, a lot of people claim that they've been to heaven. Um, there's a lot of talk about that sometimes today and I don't I'm certainly not here to dogmatically dispute or uh, challenge any of those claims uh, in fact there's been one recently in this county it's very famous uh, is traveling the uh, circuit talking about his trip to heaven and back but I'll just say this what doesn't match up with scriptural teaching we can dismiss as whatever uh, it was a bad dream or it was heartburn from pizza or whatever it was, but we can if it doesn't line up with scripture, we can dismiss it. If if it's in accordance with biblical principles or it doesn't violate biblical principles, then you know I, I'll trust that to uh, the spirit of truth for us to judge that out. But I think it's interesting. The only reason I bring that up is I want you to think about because all of you know your Bibles. Think about the visions I've mentioned: Ezekiel one. Isaiah 6, Revelation 4 and 5. Now think about those three. And if you have time, go back and study them, read them. They're almost identical, aren't they? When you compare the elements of them, they're almost identical. And they're not anything like what we hear talked about today when people say they've been to heaven. It's not some fantasy trip to never, never land. 
This is theology proper, dealing with the Lord God Almighty. They're face to face with the presence of God. And they're not embroiled in all the details of what the rooms look like or what the streets look like or what everybody's doing and playing games and stuff. They're focused on what? God. They're focused on the triune God. And they're awestruck. They're so serious. So it's not fantastical, never, never land, but it is real, ever, ever land. And in fact, what we're looking at today is more real than what we have here. And that's hard for us to comprehend because we only comprehend through our senses. But we know from the truth of God that what we see presented to us in heaven is more real than what we have here today. Because what we have here today is what? Passing away. And what we have there is eternal, fixed. It's imperishable, undefiled, and reserved, waiting on us. So, it's all about a person. It's not about a place. It's not about a time. It is a different place. It is a unique place. It is a unique time because it's outside of time. But what's important is the person. Because why? Heaven is made by who's there. Heaven is heaven because it's where God is. So, chapters 4 and 5 belong together because they establish the same truth. It's really one passage about John's vision of heaven. And that is, they're really truths. Two truths. Number one, God is sovereign and that God is to be worshipped. And, and of course, really, aren't those complementary? If God is sovereign, then God is to be worshipped. They're, you know, they're inseparable. They're like shoes on feet. They go together. And, you know, we've heard the expression, if God is not sovereign, then God is not God. Right? And that's a very true statement. But what do we mean? Because we talk a lot, especially like in our church, we talk a lot about the sovereignty of God. And so what do we mean by that? Well, one way I want to express it this morning is the absolute authority that God alone can have over everything. He is sovereign over Satan. He's sovereign over his demons. He's sovereign over men. He's sovereign over the choices of Satan, his demons, and those we make. No one usurps his authority, nor thwarts his plans and decrees. He's sovereign over all creation, over nature, over time, over storms, over accidents, over fate, over chance. Anything you want to stick in there. Cancer, marital problems, trials, tribulations. God is sovereign over that. And in summary, God does what He pleases. He's not a victim. He's not subject to anything. He does what He pleases. That's what Psalm 115.3 says. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. That is the definition of God. He's the only one who does exactly what He pleases. I'm in a situation where I don't get to do exactly what I please. You are too. But God does whatever He pleases because He has absolute rule, reign, and authority. I don't have time to develop this scene in detail, but you know, just to make a comment, in chapter 4, the word for throne, or you see the English word for throne, 13 times in chapter 4. In chapter 5, you see it five more. So 18 times in these two short chapters is the word throne. So it's like an outline or a view of it can be seen by just looking at the word throne. 
And I won't go into each one of them, but like you can just look at who's on the throne, what's around the throne, what comes from the throne, what's before the throne, what's in and around the throne, what's given back toward the throne. You know, on and on and on. Every word, every time the word throne is used, if you look at that, you can get a good outline of what's going on in this passage. But as I say, what I'm really here to focus on is not the scene and the setting and what's happening, but actually the worship that is given from it. And the first instance of it is in verse 8. So look with me. These four living creatures, uh, they do not cease to say what? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God the Almighty who was and who is to come. Who was and who is and who is to come. So see, what better way can you start off worship and acknowledging God as God than to deal with His thrice-fold holiness? You know, the throne, a throne symbolizes rule. It symbolizes authority. It symbolizes power. But you know, the throne here in heaven is not something portable. It's fixed. It's immovable. The place is defined by it and who sits upon it. And it's not in a palace. It's not in a government building. It's in what? A temple. The throne is in a temple. So the king, the ruler, is not just powerful. He doesn't have just authority. He is holy. He is holy. And holy means He's set apart. He's set apart from something, and He's set apart to something. He's set apart from everything else that's created. Everything else that's in the universe, God is set apart from that. He is distinct and separate from it. And He's set apart unto something. What is that? Everything that makes God, God. That's totally different from everything else in creation. But everything else that makes God, God, He is separated unto that. Um, and so holiness refers to His separateness. And He is holy in all of His three persons, supremely, completely, infinitely holy is the Lord God Almighty. And that second phrase, the Lord God Almighty. Almighty just refers to omnipotence, to absolute total power. And then here is the everlasting nature of God, who was, who is, and who is to come. And doesn't that remind us of what God said to Moses before the bush in Exodus when He said, tell them, I am. Who, who are you, God? God told Moses, tell them, I am. That's who I am. I am. I didn't have a beginning I'm always here. I've always been here. I'll always be here. And I always shall be here. You know, and it's interesting that we can divide all living things into three categories. Those which have a beginning and those which have an end, like plants or animals. Those which have a beginning but have no end, like who? Us and angels. And then there are those that have no beginning and no end. And there's one in that category. And that's God who was, who is, and who is to come. God is the only one who has that everlasting nature. And you know, it's interesting too because when you think about, we, we call ourselves beings. God is the only true being. 
We're all becomings. You know, and I'm making a play on words because we're constantly changing. We're constantly growing older. I'm different. I'm different right now than when I walked up here. I'm that many seconds older or minutes or longer than that if you're bored already. But um, I'm that much older, right? You're, you're changing every minute. Your body is never the same. God never has changed. He never will. He is the only being in the universe. He's separate and distinct. But now, so that's a general acknowledgement of God as God and praise and worship to Him in that aspect. But now look at the second one in verse 11. The creatures are joined by the 24 elders who fall down and cast before the throne their crowns. And they say, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. And because of your will, they existed and were created. Now you see a little shift in the focus of why God is being worshipped. First of all, God's worthiness is, is acknowledged. You know, and that's the whole thing about, you know, worship comes from a combination of a word that means to ascribe worth to someone. So someone lesser acknowledging the greater value of someone greater, ascribing that worth back to them, that's worship. And that's what is happening here is worship is taking place because God's worthiness is being acknowledged. And so that worth is being ascribed back to him. And, uh, but most importantly, I want, I want to point out that this glory, honor, and power that's acknowledged and given back to God is why. For you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. So here we see God as what? Creator. And that's why the second point I have up there is I want to talk about worship of God as creator. Because I tell you, and I know this may sound weird to you, but I want you to think about it with me. Some of the greatest blessings that I've experienced recently, especially in the lowest times, have been to see God as God, to try to have this heavenly vision, to try to see past what we live in and to look to a different perspective and to see God as God and specifically to see Him in His creative power. And I don't know if I'm the only one that... uh, Well, I know I'm not the only one like this because the Scriptures are full of the illustrations of God being praised for His creative power. Um, His glory is so vivid, is so majestic in the world that we enjoy through our senses. And and I know it may seem shallow or weak, but I cannot tell you what encouragement and strength I would gain from just seeing the glory of God in creation. Because it helps me realize how small am I. How small are my problems? You know, how insignificant are any of the challenges or problems I face to one who speaks and worlds appear. He touches mountains and they smoke. He breathes upon the waters and they roar. You know, God 
is so awesome in his creative power. And when you see the birds, when you see, I've been blessed recently to see fish in the sea and to watch the ocean. And when you see those things, you see that they dance a dance. They sing a song. They give praise to God in complete harmony and orchestration. And yet, they're fallen. You know, this creation is fallen because of our sin. It groans. And yet, even in its fallen nature, we see the glory of God. Because it's the work of His fingers. It's the whispers of His Word. And so, when I would see that, I would think, none of these creatures have any concerns. None of them. They have no cares. God is sovereign and God is taking care of them. God meets every need in perfect timing. And so every sparrow is cared for. How common is a sparrow? And yet not one falls to the ground that escapes his notice. How much more worth to him are we? And when I would think that God loves me more than anything else in creation, by His grace, not because of who I am, not because of what I've done, but because He sees me through the grace of Jesus Christ, His Son. He loves me more than anything else in creation. And so this great Creator God becomes more personal, more intimate. And that's where the scene shifts in chapter 5. Look at chapter 5. The scene changes as this scroll is produced. It's the title deed to the universe. It's a rolled up scroll with seven seals. And a strong angel is declaring who's worthy to open the book and break its seals. And there's no one. And in fact, it's a sad scene such that John begins to weep greatly because no one is worthy. And then one of the elders says to John, Stop weeping. Behold the line that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and break its seals. And so then, between the throne and the creatures, we now see a lamb, a living lamb standing, yet as if slain. So now we're, we're introduced not just to the one who sits upon the throne, God the Father, but the lamb that was slain, God the Son. And we see the triune nature of God. The Holy Spirit is mentioned in chapter 4 and again here in chapter 5 also in the sevenfold complete spirits of God. But He takes the scroll. He is worthy. He is able to take the scroll. And now a new song breaks forth. A new worship chorus is in verse 9, chapter 5, verse 9. So read that with me. It says... Worthy art thou to take the book and to break its seals, for thou wast slain and didst purchase for God with thy blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And thou hast made them to be a kingdom and priest to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. So this declaration now is focused upon God as Redeemer or as Recreator, the one who makes all things new, specifically God the Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, is the object of worship we see here. You know, how precious is it when we see God as creator 
and yet then we shift to see him as redeemer. And I see that flow all the way through the scriptures um, in the Old Testament. If you want to flip real quick back to Psalm 136, look at Psalm 136. This is a familiar psalm, but I just want to point out to you how this is evident even when it's talking about the redemption that God brings to Israel. Look at Psalm 136 and the first nine verses. You know how each verse is um, has in between each verse is this repetitive phrase, for His loving kindness is everlasting. Give thanks to the God of gods, for His loving kindness is everlasting. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for His loving kindness is everlasting. To Him alone who does great wonders, for His loving kindness is everlasting. To Him who made the heavens with skill, for His loving kindness is everlasting. He who spread out the earth above the waters. You see, on and on, those first nine verses talking about creation. Then look at verse 10. Then it shifts to him who smote the Egyptians and their firstborn and brought Israel out from their midst and with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. And he divided the Red Sea asunder. You see, now we're going from creation to redemption. From creation to redemption. And that's what... I would be overwhelmed with is when I would think about this God, this great God who created all things, who upholds all things, is also the God who redeems all things. And He has died to be worthy, to break that, to break those seals and to open the book. And make it personal. Make it personal for you. And think about God loves you If you're in Christ, God loves you more than anything else in His creation. And He died for you. He rose again for you. And He's preparing a place for you. This God who speaks and the universe appears, that's who your God is. Psalm 121 has meant a lot to me recently that says, I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. From whence shall my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And then that that psalmist goes on on to extol the value of God in His loving kindness. So you see how it's like the greatness of God and and then it's the intimacy of God, the sweetness of God. Um, We see this twofold acknowledgement all the way through. Um, a, A great passage is in Exodus, where immediately after they cross the Red Sea, a song breaks out in the camp with Moses, and they sang, Who is like thee among the gods, O Lord? This is Exodus fifteen eleven. if you want to know. Who is like thee among the gods, O Lord? Who is like thee, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? Thou didst stretch out thy right hand, the earth swallowed them. In thy loving kindness thou hast led the people whom thou hast redeemed. And let me just read you one more just so you get the full picture of it. And this is a a verse that uh, I just have been exposed to. And I didn't even, I don't know why I'd never heard this verse before, but it's in Deuteronomy 33. Deuteronomy 33, verse 26. There is none like the God of Jerusalem, or righteousness is what that word means. There is none like the God of righteousness, 
who rides the heavens to your help and through the skies in his majesty. The eternal God is a dwelling place and underneath are the everlasting arms. Isn't that sweet? The God who made all things is the same God who covers me with his pinions of grace. The God who made the heavens and the earth is the same God who upholds me by his everlasting wings, who undergirds me by his everlasting arms, who rides the heavens to my help and through the skies in his majesty. You know, and I know this is silly, but I want you to understand, I don't want you to miss my point. It's like, can we get a glimpse of how great God is? And it's like this. It's God is like this. But every time I would see God like this, I would think about, yet God is like this. Y'all understand what I'm saying? I would see God in His greatness. God in His great creative power. God in His great plan of redemption. Loving me, saving me, preparing a place for me. And yet, I'd say God is with me. You know, God, He covers me with His wings. He opposes me by His everlasting arms. It's so sweet. God is so transcendent, and yet God is so imminent. God is so majestic, and yet God is so personal. Who else but God could be that way to us? Um, it's not always that joyful, though, is it? We're not always, we don't always feel this way. We don't always feel secure in the arms of God. We don't always have the joy, the hope, the faith that we should. Why? Why is that that we don't always have that joy, that hope, that faith? To be as worshipful as we should, to see God in this way. Well, first of all, if we're not in Christ, we have no hope. If we're not in Christ, we have no faith. If we're not in Christ, then we don't experience the amazing love of God that passes all understanding. And we can't experience the peace of God that passes all understanding. But if we're in Christ, does that mean we have no problems? No, obviously. You know, the Bible's full of people with problems. Uh, Job, Joseph, David, uh, Paul, anybody you want to name. And most of all, who? Jesus Christ. Everybody has problems. Trials and tribulations come, and God is present in them to bring us His blessings and His purposes. So, for us as believers, why is it hard to always be faithful, hopeful, joyful in all things? Our lives and our bodies have been subjected to futility and are enslaved to corruption. Not of its own will, but because of Him who subjected it in hope. And of course, I'm quoting from where? Romans 8. Romans 8, verse 20 says, not of its own will, talking about creation, that includes us, not of its own will, but because of Him who subjected it in hope. 
Notice that neither sin nor man nor his choices nor Satan are credited by Paul with the futility and corruption that comes from evil and sin. But it's ultimately because of him who subjected it in hope, God himself. But why would God do that, we ask? God takes no pleasure in wickedness and no evil dwells within him. Well, you know, of course, obviously, we can't really answer that fully, can we? We can't understand it. But we know, number one, it's for his greater glory. And men or demons may be able to be the intermediate causes of problems in this world. Our own sin may be the cause of problems. It's just, it's a fallen world where there is, there is evil, there is sickness, there is problems. But Paul, like Job, looks right past them to God. I'll read you this quote that uh, John Piper wrote in um, his book called Suffering in the Sovereignty of God. Job had discovered with many of you that it is small comfort to focus on the freedom of Satan to destroy. In the academic classroom and the apologetics discussion, the agency of Satan in our suffering may rest a little of the burden of God's sovereignty for some, but for others like Job, there is more security and more release and more hope and more support and more glorious truths in despising Satan's hateful hand and looking straight past him to God for the cause and for his mercy. And that has been a huge hope to look past whatever may be in between me and God, but to look past that to God because he is my creator, he is my redeemer, and he is my God, and therefore my hope. Um, all the hope that comes from faith depends upon perspective. When we think upon these things, when we think heavenly viewpoints, then our hope becomes different. Um, in fact, if you look at the back at chapter 5, at the last two Breakouts of worship in verse 12. Repeated again is this praise for God as Redeemer. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then the last one in verse 13. They close by saying, To Him who sits on the throne, God the Father, and to Him and to the Lamb, God the Son, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. So, how do we maintain this worshipful life? How do we maintain a perspective that drives us to see God as God, to see God as Creator, to see God as Redeemer, and from that to have our faith increased, our joy intensified, and our hope built up? How do we do that? Well, I'll give you a closing illustration that may help, may not. Uh, it may be silly. If you've ever been to Atlanta Airport, it may help. But um, Atlanta Hartsfield International Airport is the busiest airport in the world. In the world. Um, it has the most annual passengers of over 85 million people. The most aircraft operations... Uh, arrivals and departures are almost a million last year. 
of any airport in the world. Every day, right at a quarter of a million people pass through the airport from every state and 72 locations in 45 countries. Every day, almost 3,000 flights land or take off, or from two to four a minute, every minute. With over 55,000 employees, it's the largest employer in the state of Georgia. Five runways, one heliport, two terminals, seven concourses, 83 shops, 77 food and beverage outlets, and 1,300 toilets. So it's an understatement to say it's a busy place, right? And if you go to Atlanta and you watch everything happening in Atlanta at the airport, you think what? This is utter chaos. It's utter chaos. I mean, how does anybody ever get their baggage? You know, you see people running to and fro. You see trucks and carts running all over the aprons. And you see huge jet aircraft taxiing, waiting, circling overhead, taking off, landing from all directions, day and night, in all weather. You know, it doesn't matter what the weather is. You're just overwhelmed with a sense, or I am, with a sense of chaos. In fact, it can even, if you pardon my expression, it can seem like it's hell. But if you could go up to the control tower and if you could see the computers and the systems and the people that are there controlling everything, <laughs> yeah, I guess you would be scared. But because I'm using an imperfect analogy to illustrate a perfect example. But if you pardon the fact that it is imperfect, if you could go see what's happening in the control tower and understand that everything's under control. It's all under control. If you're in a control tower, it may look like chaos. It may seem like pandemonium. It may seem like that life is hell. But it's all under control. It's under control. And that is the way life can be for us. Believers aren't spared any of the chaos. We aren't spared any of the troubles. They come to us the same as they do to unbelievers. But what's the difference? We can see into the throne room, into the control tower. We can get above this ground level perspective and see it's under control. It's totally under control. One sporting goods company has made a great word uh, very familiar to us. And when we think about overcoming in spite of these difficulties and seeing God as who He is so that we might have the faith to overcome. And what is that Greek word? Nike. Nike means overcomer. It means victor. And they've been very victorious in their marketing strategy. There's also a Greek prefix that's applied to that called hooper, H-U-P-E-R. And that means over or beyond or above. So like we get the word hyper from it, like hyperspace, hypersonic means way beyond supersonic speed. Um, we need to be a victor. We need to be an overcomer. We don't need to be a victim of this life. God has redeemed us and gained the victory for us. So how do we do that? John, John tells us in 1 John 5, 4 that our faith is the victory that has overcome the world because it's born of God. And beyond that, how do we have the faith to be super overcomers? Hooper Nakaho. 
That means super victors to deal with some things. Well, if we can change our perspective from ground level to the control tower in heaven and see that God rules and reigns in absolute sovereignty and what? Amazing love. See, that's the thing we've got to put together is that God is this great God of absolute power and sovereignty and yet He is the tender, loving God whose mercies are new every morning, whose graces are abundant and manifold, and whose love is just frankly amazing. That Holy One, that Creator God, that Redeemer God is our God. He's your God. He's my God. And He takes care of us more than anything else in His creation. He's directing and controlling every step more than any other creature. He loves me. He loves you more than anything else. So understanding this immensity and this eminence, this great power and this amazing love, then we begin to know that neither our sin nor our choices nor Satan and all his demons nor the evil and fallen world system nor death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from what? The love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. But in all these things, we, hooper nakaho, overwhelmingly conquer. We are super conquerors in all these things through Him who loved us. Not because of us, but because of Him. Not because of our place and time, but because of His place and eternity. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, we declare with the angels that you're holy. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we declare with the living creatures that you are holy. We declare with the elders in heaven, the church represented, that you are holy. We declare with every created thing on earth that you are holy. We worship you, Lord, as creator We worship You, Lord, as Redeemer. And we are encouraged. Our faith faith is built up seeing You as the great and holy God who is Creator and who is Redeemer. But Lord, we are even more encouraged by Your great love which is shed in our hearts through Jesus Christ. That through Him we have standing with You And that you have died to purchase us, to build a kingdom of priests. And that you have risen again to keep us saved. And that even now you're preparing a place for us. And that is our hope. You are our hope. May we be ever focused on that, Lord. May we not lose the perspective of heaven to see our life in that perspective from this day forward. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.